Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 19th of June, 2020. Now, I've been talking to you over the last several uh, sessions about certain biomedical considerations that are organized around the etiology of disease, particularly we've been talking about cancer, and how we understand it at first the clinical level, like how it's presented given diseases, and then how those clinical rep, uh, presentations are revealed by studying pathophysiology, and then how the pathophysiology can be understood by a deeper dive into the molecular genetics and biochemistry of the system, and even from the biochemistry down to the chemistry and the physics of it. And from all of that discussion, we also dis, uh, included how certain pharmaceutical drugs or therapies can be used in various time frames, or that is event ontologies, of a disease progression, and how sometimes they work very effectively and they can cause a remission of a cancer, but other times they don't seem to work at all in some patients, or if they do, they only work for some short period of time. So we discussed the sequence of events related to how pharmaceuticals or other kinds of therapies can be implemented uh, during the course of a disease. We discussed a, a fair amount also about the distribution of age, sex, and um, comorbidities of a patient and how those relate to whether or not a pharmaceutical will function where uh, in any kind of positive way to decrease the, the um, conclusion of the disease, particularly diseases that end up in death, like cancer or cardiovascular disease, or that at least slow the progress sufficiently so that you get a, a flatlining of the progress of the disease curve in such a way that a person can extend their lifespan with reasonable health until eventually they might indeed still pass from that disease. So we've been talking a great deal about biochemical pathways, signal transduction, cascades, hormonal, both at the endocrine and paracrine level. Last couple of times we've been talking about autocrine hormones like PEDF and of course, we've been talking about the products of oxygenation of fatty acids off and on and other lipid metabolic pathways such as sphingolipid metabolism and glycerolipid metabolism. And I've been discussing them relative to the underpinnings of the pathophysiology that ultimately then equate to the presentation of disease and the medical procedures associated with, uh, first of all, diagnosing disease then determining uh, what possible therapeutics can be directed towards it. Now, before I get back to those very discrete discussions, which we're going to do, and even in this particular half hour, I want to give you a, uh, I guess, a philosophical understanding of how I look at the scientific method. Because I think when we discuss this uh, at the beginning, you'll understand why a lot of the scientific literature seems to show paradoxes, which usually I can unravel as a pseudo-paradox, 
and therefore nothing more than being contrary and not actually contradictory when you're looking at two or three or four different sets of data that are being uh, presented as evidence for the suggestion of a hypothesis of the determination of some disease state or a therapeutic response to it. So what that boils down to is the following. Um, I've introduced in the scientific literature, as well as in uh, my multiple lectures, um, both those taped and, and those presented uh, physically, um, a, a, an idea of looking at science by using a dialectical event ontology point of view. And I've explained what I meant by uh, that new way of looking at it, which I have I've truncated the, the long phrase into die-event ontology. Um, because I want to be able to get, I guess, for a word that's often overused, but I think fits here, a holistic approach to studying research science. Because if I'm going to be presenting this as a professor, uh, as a learned scholar in my given field, which is biochemistry, I don't want to be presenting it to students, and those students can be uh, undergraduates or graduates or professionals in, say, biomedicine or professionals in some other field. Likewise, lay people that want to know authentic science and not that which has been diluted and redistributed in such a way to come up with a point of view that is um, recommended by, say, a given association or society. What I want to do is present it in such a way so that your mind is functioning relative to the information you're getting so that you can make your own judgments about it without, of course, having the years of experience or the education that is required for this kind of information to be generated, that is, by scientists and by practicing clinic, clinicians in the, uh, in the particular field of biomedicine. So that's what I mean by look, studying the underpinnings or the foundation of it. So let's take a look at the dialectics of the scientific method itself, okay? And remember, just dialectics or dialectical analysis just means looking at um, the generation of an argument that can be counterposed by other arguments to try to get to a resolution that isn't necessarily a synthesis of opposing views, but that includes or incorporates opposing views to try to get closer to, via argumentation and in science, experimentation via um, generating uh, hypothetical deductions and designing experiments and generating data, ultimately you get closer to something about nature that is more truthful than what we knew before. Uh, and I will give you a, a definition of what I mean by truth um, uh, directly here. So that's what I mean by doing a dialectic of the scientific method. So dialectics means in general, right? Coming up with arguments and trying to get closer to uh, what we think is more accurate, okay? So the, in, dial, in scientific method, there is an initial proposition that works as a premise, and that requires data as transformed into definitive evidence. Now, that's because of disinterested experiments experimentation. All of that can and must be used as a foundation for further research into the workings of nature. Now, that's followed discursively via deduction. 
And of course, deduction is reasoning from the general to the specific. Um, and that's toward an hypothesis, which must be tested empirically via experimentation to reach results that are tabulated into data, finally analyzed critically into evidence that is used to make a new generalization. This would be an inductive mood that either supports the original premise or, very importantly, refutes it and thus suggests to replace it. However, the creation of the hypothesis itself generated with a deductive analysis of previously agreed upon scientific judgments was itself derived from reasoned analysis of evidence that has been judged accurate, reproducible, and thus, very important here, predictive. Hence, biasing, this is my point, this is my perspective here, hence biasing all future use of the determined inductive conclusion, tethered to, always, the original hypothesis as current theory. Therefore, a dialectical treatment of this scientific method is lacking in the principle of uncertainty, which includes, of course, the possibility of error. Only an event ontological pathway can lead to the exit from the cave of that cyclical a priori judgment. Okay, so why? So first, let's, let's dissect, let's tear down what I'm trying to say here more clinically. The event in question involves an inclusion of change over space-time as per the observer and the observed. And that's eventuated by the observer himself. The ontology is the environment that also changes over space-time, but it is independent of its substance as defined by the observer, and yet only apprehended by his owned phenomenology, that is, through the senses. I conclude, therefore, that all science is approximation, and any judgments based on research can lead to ideas only pretending to be justified true beliefs, where justified true beliefs is, our, is a working definition for the term knowledge. So knowledge depends upon coherent and foundational aspects of nature. We call those truths. Plus argumentation based on reason and empiricism, plus the necessity for individual belief. Science explains what truths may become subsequently, however, uncertainly. So as a scientist, what I can do is continue to explore not only what can be revealed through my methods, my scientific method in the general sense, but more importantly, how I come to believe it. Because knowledge has the aspect of belief. If you don't believe it, then you can't go around professing it as a scholar. 
So the important aspect here is how I come to believe it becomes absolutely critical because I'm the one that's presenting the lecture material. I'm the one that's publishing a paper. I'm the one that's putting my ideas, my experiments, my methods, my results, my conclusions into peer-reviewed research literature form. Therefore, the number one influence I should have upon myself to determine whether or not what I'm publishing is as close to accurate as I can make it is how do I come to believe that it is? Now that then is the justification for trying to use a dialectical event ontological approach to science in the general and to then critically analyzing what is published. So let's go back and re, let's go and recap what we talked about just last time on this very podcast. We're talking about a pseudo paradox, talking about remember cancer research. And it revealed as simple, both universal affirmative and universal negatives can both be wrong. So in this particular case, again, summarizing from the last couple of lectures, an accumulation of free fatty acids did promote hepatocellular carcinoma growth by inhibiting the activation of an important enzyme called AMP kinase. And it did so via a ubiquitin proteasome-mediated degradation of that protein, of the AMP kinase protein. Now that then would cause increased de novo fatty acid synthesis, at the same time a decrease in that cellular bed of fatty acid oxidation, beta oxidation. So you're gonna get an accumulation of free fatty acid, right? Which is basically one of the clinical features of hepatocellular carcinoma. Starts off with steatosis, right? Steohepatitis. That means an accumulation of lipid in the liver. Now, sometimes that's associated with alcoholism, but, but we're speaking more about the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which ultimately can lead to, uh, after going through phases of fibrosis, uh, steatosis, fibrosis, cirrhosis, and ultimately full-blown hepatocellular carcinoma. So how does that work? See the word how. Likely, okay, now here's, here's a biochemical how question. Likely it's via the transcription. How do you get this accumulation of free fatty acids? Of acetylcarboxylase, because that's the rate-limiting enzyme of de novo fatty acid synthesis. And that's because of an inhibition of beta oxidation genes, okay? So if you have an inhibition of beta oxidation, how do you then arrive at a transcription of acetylcarboxylase? Well, this is associated then with a re reversion of the normal signaling that is acquired by AMP kinase activity. So you get an enhancement of fatty acid synthesis at the same time you're plummeting beta oxidation and the activity of the carnitine palmitoyl transferase, both of which will be tuned up by the AMP kinase working downstream transcriptionally to cause the expression of those genes at the level of transcription. So what this does, this accumulation of free fatty acid uncouples the malonyl uh, coa decarboxylase system which when on tends to de-inhibit CPT1, 
right? Because remember, when it's on, what happens is that if you if you have the melanocoid decarboxylase, if that enzyme is functioning, you're going to generate acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA is the precursor for fatty acid synthesis, right? At the same time, malonyl-CoA inhibits the CPT1. Yet, malonyl-CoA is the product of acetyl-CoA carboxylase. So the only way this works without becoming a, a paradox is that the malonyl-CoA isn't static. There's a change through space-time. That is, it gets metabolized to the end of fatty acid synthesis, palmitoyl-CoA. So there has to be an event that follows through. These compounds are not generated and exist in static molarity in the cell. So the uncoupling of one system, the decarboxylase, then causes a corruption of the anabolic pathway, which is the acetyl-CoA carboxylase, hence enhancing the production of fatty acids, even when the cell is trying to go into an autophagic stress mode to go through beta oxidation and remove fatty acids to generate energy, for example, to make uh, a decision, a cellular decision to become apoptotic and kill the cancerous cell. That's why pharmaceuticals working on the apoptotic system can then themselves not only not work, but could actually promote further tumorogenesis depending on when in the cycle they're functioning and what is the equipoise of all the enzymes in play. So here it is in the specific. This is, again, just as a recap from last time. Extracellularly, remember the protein PEDF, that was a key player in our description of what is needed to understand not only hepatocellular carcinoma, but also uh, pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma, car carcinoma, right? PDAC. Extracellularly, PEDF inhibits adipogenesis and angiogenesis. Now that is looking at a square of opposition argument. All PEDF is good, right? Intracellularly, intracellularly, PDF results in rampant glycolysis since fatty acids cannot be used for ATP synthesis. So there, that argument is no PEDF is good, okay? Because we know that rampant glycolysis in the presence of oxygen is a hallmark of tumorogenesis. That's part of the cachexia, the wasting of the entire system because glycolysis is a very poor way to generate ATP. It also means that fatty acids can't be used. So extracellularly, PDF is good. Intracellularly, PDF is not good, okay? Therefore, universal affirmative and universal negative can both be wrong. And these are contrary when they're both, when they're there, as stated, but they are not contradictory. So what that allows you to do is support the subalternate arguments that some S, in this case, PDF is good, and some S is not good, or some PEDF is not good. It depends on, now getting at the pathophysiological level, cellular location, not simply on pharmacodynamics or kinetics of any drug that may be regulating, either antagonizing or agonizing that system. So remember, intracellularly, acetyl-CoA goes to malonyl-CoA, goes to fatty acid synthesis. And that, at the same time, malonyl-CoA 
is converted to acetylcholine because of the decarboxylase. The result is lowered beta oxidation of fatty acids and yet tumor accumulation of fatty acids. So starvation and exercise, this is a therapy, right? Lowers the concentration of malonyl-CoA by activating an AMP-activated protein kinase, AMP kinase. And what that enzyme does, now I'm going to reveal the last steps here, it phosphorylates and then inhibits acetylcholine carboxylase. This has nothing to do with transcription, it has to do with inhibiting the enzyme in situ at, at, at a time when acetylcholine carboxylase, if not inhibited, could be conducting the, the business of synthesis of fatty acid. So AMP kinase, not so, but in this system, in the, in the hepatocellular carcinoma system, is destroyed. So ACC, acetylcholine carboxylase, is no longer inhibited. So PEDF deficient mice had higher levels of two lipid droplet associated proteins. Remember what they were, tail interacting protein 47, that tip 47, also known as perilipin 3. And then the adipose differentiation related protein or ADRP, otherwise known as perilipin 2. And they also had elevated tag lipase. So PEDF elevation would lower triacylglycerol oil body membrane integrity because of the effect on those lipid droplet associated proteins, okay? But an increase in lipase activity and AMP kinase degradation, that will tend to decrease fatty acid oxidation increase fatty acid synthesis. The result, the conclusion of this pathology is an accumulation of free fatty acids which cannot be metabolized and thus become toxic to the cell. This is called lipotoxicity. And we've talked about the mechanism of that. I'm not gonna follow that here. So that I wanted to bring up, first of all, a, a dialectical analysis of the scientific method then I wanted to recap why we even need to go there, because these paradoxes can be resolved by studying the system. And then I want to move on. Okay, And so let's move on from there. Okay. Now, it's a paper published in uh, Oncology Letters in 2019, December, so some six and a half months ago. Uh, this is volume 18, page 6741 and ongoing. Now, what is this paper going to reveal to us, okay? Most significant gene expression increases in the PDAC meta-analysis that these people were studying. Remember what PDAC is, right? Pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. They did a meta-analysis of the data, and it was published in late 2019. And what it said, that many of the genes that seem to be affected in PDAC, by right? studying the expression of genes in human tissues from patients with have PDAC, were those related to the extracellular matrix of the ECM. Now they did a KEG pathway analysis. Don't worry about that. That's just a, a register of pathways that you can get on the internet. For KEG pathway analysis, they looked at pancreatic secretion, that one type of pathway. 
They looked at phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase AKT signaling, that's an anabolic pathway, and they looked at ECM receptor interactions. They found that all of those were highly enriched in PDAC patients. This result carries some diagnostic potency, of course, since the extracellular matrix and subcellular signaling are necessary for what? Cell differentiation, fate, proliferation, and migration, or the hallmark of cancer leading to metastasis. So they had 10 highly connected genes. I'm not going to tell you what all they are right now. One of them is albumin, uh, one of them which carries fatty acids to cells. Another is epidermal growth factor. And then there was a bunch of metalloproteinases, uh, matrix metalloproteinases. There was also an epidermal growth factor receptor, of course. And for our purposes, two really, really important things. One of them is the plasminogen plasmid system, plasmid system, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, but also serpene one or serpin one. Now, serpins. This goes back to what we're talking about for the last several lectures, is a serine proteinase inhibitor, okay? It's a proteinase inhibitor. That's what serpents are, right? So they're serine protease inhibitors. They're proteins, which are protease inhibitors. So all of those seem to be connected to PDAC, okay? So how do you get, you know, so the, these people in this paper published late in 2019 are saying, oh, well, we did this analysis of, what genes were expressed in this tissue we got from PDAC patients. We've got these 10 genes or so that seem like they're really connected to PDAC as compared to healthy pancreatic tissues. So they're going to use a lot of algorithms and statistical analysis, and they're going to hopefully figure out what's going on in what they call the TME or the tumor microenvironment. So for example, they're going to say that fibronectin, which is one of the genes that comes up, encodes the, the protein fibronectin, and that's a major constituent of the ECM. Okay. And you see that in the tumor microenvironment, the TME. And they further tell you that the binding of fibronectin 1 to its receptor activates that signaling pathway in pancreatic cancer cells. And what it does, unfortunately, is promote tumor survival, invasion, metastasis, and indeed associated with that, angiogenesis. So the expression of fibronectin in pancreatic cancer cells is obviously also associated with a very low survival rate when you already have a low survival rate, right? So it's really bad news. So they also found another protein, which I want to spend time on, but I'm going to be ending this episode soon. And that's TIMP1. And that's tissue inhibitor of metalloproteinase 1. Inhibitor of metalloproteinase 1. And that's a secreted glycoprotein, and it blocks metalloproteinase activity. So now again, it looks like we have a contrarian system. We're telling you the metalloproteinases seem to be linked to, of course, metastasis because they're breaking down the extracellular matrix, allowing for cellular invasion. Yet they're also saying that TIMP1 seems to be playing a role. So again, I'm going to use my dialectical event ontological perspective to help dissect the scientific literature for you so that ultimately we can get to how, whether or not these are contradictory and, and there is such a thing as contradiction in science, of course, or whether or not they're just contrarian, which means you're looking at subalternate uh, propositions in, in a square of opposition of arguments to understand 
first of all, to generate a deduction, to generate a hypothesis to do experiments, and then ultimately how those experiments play out in terms of the large S of the other scientific literature. So I'm going to stop here, and we're going to continue on this really fascinating discussion of these genes which were expressed from this paper, and I'm going to get into a lot of other publications as well. So for right now, this is Dr. Dan Guerra uh, coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest saying bye.